Hey, welcome to episode number 46 of More Than Bread. I'm Dan Nold, your host, Bible reader, and the pastor of Calvary in State College, Pennsylvania. In the first 40-plus episodes of More Than Bread, we, we did a quick tour through the whole New Testament, and now we're going a, a bit deeper into the Gospel of John. We're reading the book and listening to the Spirit and pondering Jesus. Actually, that's the main thing, just pondering Jesus. Now, now, before we read John 3, let me set the stage just a little bit. In a moment, we're going to read about a man who came to Jesus. On the outside, he seemed to have very little lack, not much that he needed. He had it kind of all together, both in his office, his reputation, his success and achievement. Few people probably knew that he was looking for something more. He had a career that brought him prestige and approval. He was a leader. In fact, part of the ruling council of the Jewish people, he was extremely educated. In fact, in verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. But something was missing in his deepest, truest heart. Some part of his life was was lacking. And so one night he came to Jesus, and, and that's probably significant. Jesus wasn't politically correct in Nicodemus's cultural circles. It, it'd be like Donald Trump going to Joe Biden for mentoring. If he goes, he's going to go by night because it won't sit well with his circle. Nicodemus went by night, but he went. That's also significant. He went. That there was something about Jesus that pulled him, something more, something possibly worth the cost of his reputation. Whatever it was, there was something more. He, he called Jesus rabbi, and he acknowledged that he was from God. Now, earlier in John chapter 2, verse 25, we see that Jesus had this ability, this unique ability to see what was in a man's heart. So I think Jesus knew that Nicodemus knew that something was missing. He was looking for something more. So Jesus doesn't even wait for the question. We'll see this in a moment. He doesn't even wait for the question that Nicodemus has been rehearsing for days. Instead, he says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't even see the life God offers you. You must be born again. And we've heard those words so many times, I'm afraid that, that in some cases they've lost their impact, their meaning, their wonder. The words born again have become this quaint, almost hick-like description of a subset of Christians. You one of those born-againers? <laughs> we've lost the wonder. We've lost the reality of what Jesus meant when he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. See, here's what Jesus meant. Nicodemus, you need a radical change, not more of the same. Born again wasn't meant to be an adjective for a subset of Christ's followers. Born again was never the goal. It's simply a description of the path to something radically new. See, in Jesus, God offers us something more that's so radically different that it's like being born all over again, like, like starting over, being delivered into a whole new world. It, it's, not only, it, it's not like before, only better. It's not cosmetic or marginal. You are on your way to a breathtaking, supernatural, eternally new life. And make no mistake, it's a new life, not a new religion. There, there's a wonder to it. We, we can't capture it in the, the rules and traditions of religion. It can't be contained within the four walls of the building, even if we call that building a church. And we will miss the wonder and joy if we limit this life to 60 or 90 minutes a week, the wind blows where it wishes, Jesus said. You can hear it in the moment, but you have no idea where it came from or where it goes. And so it is with those who are born from the Spirit, which also means that in this new life, you're not in control. Any more than you're in control of the wind, any more than an infant, a born infant is in control of the world into which it is born, you are not in control. 
And if we want the something more that Jesus offers, we must surrender control. But for the moment, we do. We're on our way to John chapter 3. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. And if you're not familiar with it, my words, that, that, that word Pharisee, that was, that was almost like a religious political party of the time. It was a sect. It was a group. They were bound together by their interpretation of the Old Testament of the Bible and by their culture, by the way that they lived. But, but think of them as a, as a religious political party. A Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Verse 2. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And in my words, let me pause there a moment and just say, you know, in, in Jewish culture at that time, that phrase born again was, was not brand new. That born again was a, a term that they used in those days to signify a transition that, that led to a whole new life. Like, like the transition to marriage could, could be called being born again. So Jesus is drawing upon a, a phrase that's already in the culture to explain to Nicodemus how radical a change this needs to be. In verse 5, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you cannot explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this, this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. And all of this, my words, are hearkening back to John chapter 1. Jesus is the light of the world. He comes into the darkness, into the mess, this messy love story. <laughs> comes into the darkness. The light shines and the light cannot overpower it. But people living in the darkness have this tendency to shield our eyes, to want to hide from the light until we trust that the light is good. Verse 22, then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and they went into the Judean countryside 
Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, he's also baptizing people and everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. My word, you can see a little bit of a little bit of competitive tension rising between John the Baptist team and Jesus team. But John the Baptist will have nothing of this. In verse 27, he says, John replied, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Boy, there's something there in that verse 30. My words, let me just say to you, it's one thing for us to say, Jesus, I want you to become greater and greater. But isn't it so hard for us at the same time to say, and I want to become less and less? Verse 31, Jesus has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things, but he's come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few people believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's word, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son, and he's put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. And anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Before I go on to a few devotional and application thoughts, don't miss how how Jesus, how John in this case, how John puts together belief and obey. In verse 36, anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life, and anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life. See, there's no dichotomy. Those are two sides of the same coin, to believe and to obey, to trust and obey. If we don't obey, then we don't really trust. If we don't trust, we find it really difficult to obey. So how do we find the something more that is something great that Nicodemus um, comes to Jesus asking for? The path is displayed throughout the Bible, but you cannot miss it in Jesus' words in John chapter 3, verse 16. That's where we're going to land for this episode. We have to land in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This might be the most well-known Bible verse in modern day history. It's probably been displayed in every athletic stadium in the world. In fact, in 2009, in the NCAA football national championship, Tim Tebow wrote John 3.16 in the black smear beneath his eyes. That night, over 90 million people Googled John 3.16. And John 3.16 gives us amazing one-sentence tweetable summary of the good news that leads to a great life. It's a step-by-step guide to a great life. Here's where it starts. For God, God is the greatest one. Our God is the greatest one. A great life begins with a great vision of an awesome, awesome God. 
I love David Livingston's words when he first laid eyes on Victoria Falls, one of the seven wonders of the world, the largest single sheet of water in the world, 400 feet high, over a mile wide, roughly twice the size of Niagara Falls. The falling water generates spray and mist that can rise 3,000 feet high. At full moon, a moonbow can be seen in the spray. Livingston wrote this about his first wonder-filled experience at the falls. He writes, Creeping with awe to the verge, I peered down into a large rent made from bank to bank of the broad Zambezi River, and I saw a stream 1,000 yards broad leap down, the most wonderful sight I witnessed in Africa, so lovely it was surely gazed upon by angels in their flight. I love that image, and, and I think we should feel it at least on occasion as we approach God, creeping with awe to the verge. Maybe on his knees, moving slowly, stretching his neck, eyes wide, creeping with awe to the verge. Imagine the wonders he peers over the edge. You know, God has created our hearts with a capacity for wonder and awe. When our lives lack awe, our souls rebel or shrivel, and, and we seek wonder and vicarious thrills. But the greatest wonder and awe that this life offers, the wonder and awe that our hearts were actually shaped for is the wonder that comes from being in the presence of God. I think sometimes we imagine God is like us, only more, <laughs> only bigger. Holiness is not so much a characteristic of God as it is a way of saying God is not like us. He is without limit. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. He is fearfully beautiful, knee-knockingly awesome, mysteriously indescribable, indescribable for God, the greatest one, so loved. This is the greatest heart. He's so loved. He has the greatest heart. If you study the, the religions of the ancient world, you know that this message of a God who loves us was new. When, when the prophet Isaiah was describing the heart of God for his people, he chose the image of a mother. In Isaiah chapter 49, God says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. I've I've tattooed you on my hands. As Isaiah tries to paint a picture of the depth of God's love for them, he paints it with the brushstrokes of a mother. He goes for the deepest, strongest, fiercest love he can find. And he asks, could a mother forget her child? Not likely. But God's love is even greater for those she might. He never will. You are so loved. In fact, God makes an interesting de declaration. I've engraved you on the palms of my hand. <laughs> This is the first tattoo, a cosmic tattoo on God's palms, and it's your name. And, and when Jesus would come and allow his body to be pierced, we would see the cost of those tattoos. He will never forget you. He never could, for God so loved the world. This is the greatest number of people, the world. Do you know how mind-blowing this would have been for Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus God, Jesus was speaking to a religious leader who thought that at best God only loved his people, the Jewish people. And, and what does Jesus say? For God so loved the world. That's more than just a number. I mean, it's deeper than simply saying God loves everyone. And in John's gospel, the word used for world means the world that is opposed to God, the world against God, people that have closed their ears and rebelled, people who mess up and trash God's heart and reject Jesus. This is who God loves. Like a mother, he doesn't love the mess, but he loves the people who make the mess. In fact, you have captured his heart. You, you have. 
Even as you close your ears and make a mess of your life, God so loves you without limits. He loves you as you are and in hopes of who you will be. No one knows you better. No one loves you deeper. The one who knows you best loves you most. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. This is the greatest gift. This is the greatest gift, and love gives. When we love deeply, we give greatly. We, we give of ourselves. We give sacrificially. We forgive. In his book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Mark Buchanan introduces us to Regine from Rwanda. Regine came to Christ while reading her sister's Bible during the genocide that ravaged her country. Regine tells a story of the genocide. She says, a mother's only son was killed, and consumed with grief, hate, and bitterness, she prayed, God, reveal my son's killer. Over and over, every day, every night, she prayed, God, reveal my son's killer. One night, she dreamed she was going to heaven, but in order to get to heaven, she had to pass through a certain house. She had to enter through the front door, go through all of its rooms, up the stairs, and exit through the back. She asked God whose house this was. It's the house, God told her, of your son's killer. In other words, the road to heaven passed through the house of her enemy. Two nights later, there was a knock at her door. She opened it, and there stood this young man about her son's age. Yes, she asked. He hesitated and then said, I'm the one who killed your son. And since that day, I've had no life, no peace. I'm placing my life in your hands. Kill me. I'm dead already. Throw me in jail. I'm in prison already. She had prayed for this day, but now she didn't know what to do. To her surprise, she realized that she didn't want to hurt him. She found she only wanted one thing, a son. I ask this of you, she said to him, come into my house and live with me. Eat the food I would have given my son. Wear the clothes I would have given my son. Become the son I lost. Do you understand? This is what love does. Love gives, and God gave the greatest gift. He gave us his son. Jesus died for us, my sin responsible for his death, and yet God invites us in. He gave us his only son so that whoever, this is the greatest invitation. Is there anyone left out of whoever? Is there any distinction between the people who are part of whoever? <laughs> that Does it matter if you're rich or poor? Does the color of your skin matter? Does it matter if you're gay or straight? Does it matter if you were abused or had a happy childhood? Does it matter if you had an abortion? Are you left out of whoever? If you were a bad mother or you hate your mother? No. Whoever is whoever. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him. And this is the greatest response. You may say, well, I, I do believe in him. And if we aren't careful, we start to define the word believe as the intellectual assent to a series of statements. Son of God, yes, I believe that. Died on a cross, yes, I believe that. Resurrection, yes, I believe that. But let me suggest that the required response of John 3.16 is more than just saying yes with your mind. It's about saying yes with your life. It's about trusting everything to God. It's about following, being born again. If we trust him, we'll obey him. If we obey him, we, we, it's because we trust him. If we trust him enough to follow him, he'll lead us to a great life. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him would not be destroyed, but will have eternal life, the greatest life, a life filled with joy, new wine, cups overflowing. Listen again, Jesus is not offering us more years of the same old thing. It's an invitation to something more that's so radically different that it's like being born all over again, like starting over and being delivered into a whole new world. 
It's not like before, only better. It's not cosmetic or marginal. You are on your way to a breathtaking, supernatural, eternally new life. So that's the invitation right now. The invitation offered to you. Ah, What will you do with that? John 3 is such a good chapter. Let me read it again from the message. In John 3, it says this. There was a man of the Pharisee sect, Nicodemus, a prominent leader among the Jews. And late one night, he visited Jesus and said, Rabbi, we all know you're a teacher straight from God. No one could do all the God-pointing, God-revealing acts you do if God weren't in on it. Jesus said, you're absolutely right. Take it from me, unless a person is born from above, it's not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. How can anyone, said Nicodemus, be born who is already born and grown up? You can't reenter your mother's womb and be born again. Well, what are you saying with this born from above talk? Jesus said, you're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into a new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. When you look at a baby, it's just that, a baby you can look at and touch, but the person who takes shape within is formed by something you can't see and touch, the spirit, and it becomes a living spirit. So don't be so surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough how the wind blows this way and that. You hear it rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone born from above, by the wind of God, the Spirit of God. Nicodemus asked, what what do you mean by this? How does this happen? And Jesus said, you're a respected teacher of Israel, and you don't know these basics? Listen carefully. I'm speaking sober truth to you. I speak only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I've seen with my own eyes. There's nothing secondhand here, no hearsay. Yet instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you procrastinate with questions. If I tell you things that are plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me, what use is there in telling you of things you can't see? The things of God. No one has ever gone up into the presence of God except the one who came down from that presence the Son of Man, in the same way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see and then believe it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And everyone who looks up to him trusting and expectant will gain a real eternal life. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his Son, his one and only Son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed By believing in him, everyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without even knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind son of God when introduced to him. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. And everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work it is. After this conversation, Jesus went on with his disciples into the Judean countryside and relaxed with them there. He was also baptizing. and At the same time, John was baptizing over at Anon near Salim, where water was abundant. This was before John was thrown into jail. 
John's disciples got in, into an argument with the establishment Jews over the nature of baptism. They came to John and said, Rabbi, you know the one who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you authorized with your witness? Well, now he's competing with us. He's baptizing too. And everyone's going to him instead of us. John answered, it's not possible for a person to exceed. I'm talking about eternal success without heaven's help. You yourselves were there when I made it public that I was not the Messiah, but simply the one sent ahead of him to get things ready. The one who gets the bride is by definition the bridegroom, and the bridegroom's friend, his best man, that's me. In place at his side where he can hear every word is genuinely happy. How could he be jealous when he knows that the wedding is finished and the marriage is off to a good start? That's why my cup is running over. This is the assigned moment for him to move into the center while I slip off to the sidelines. The one who comes from above is head and shoulders over other messengers from God. The earthborn is earthbound and speaks earth language, but the heavenborn is in a league of his own. He sets out the evidence of what he saw and heard in heaven. And no one wants to deal with these facts, but anyone who examines the evidence will come to stake his life on this, that God himself is the truth. The one that God sent speaks God's words and don't think he rations out the spirit in bits and pieces. The father loves the son extravagantly. He turned everything over to him so he could give it all away. A lavish distribution of gifts. That's why whoever accepts and trusts the son gets in on everything. Life complete and forever. And that is also why the person who avoids and distrusts the son is in the dark and doesn't see life. All he experiences of God is darkness in an angry darkness at that. Let me pray. Father God, may we be the people who deeply desire the light, who, who want to come into the light even if our deeds are darkness, even if there's a darkness in our life because we, we trust you with the light. We trust your love. We trust your grace. We trust your truth. Jesus, thank you for this moment that you had with Nicodemus. Thank you for this explanation of, of your life, of your truth. Father God, thank you so much that you loved the whole world so much. You loved me. You loved each and every person listening to this. You loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us so that we could have life. Not, not more of the same. <laughs> not the same old, same old forever, but something so radically different. Radically different like a breathtaking, supernatural, eternally new life. And I pray, Father, that each and every one of us listening to this have either, have either accepted that invitation to dive into Jesus, or we will accept that invitation. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.